I want to ask if you'd turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I just want to read a couple verses out of this for us and just uh, share for a couple minutes. Um, Hopefully this is applicable to your life before our communion time together. It says in verse uh, 14, um, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw, uh, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want to talk to you today, tonight, about uh, stop shopping for a Savior. (laughs) There's a lot of that going on today. And uh, Paul Tripp wrote this. I read this the other day in an email I got from him. It wasn't a personal email. It was just an email, a generic email. Um, He wrote this. He says, there is only one Black Friday. It was not the day after Thanksgiving. It was not a day when self-oriented consumers bumped into, climbed over, pushed into, screamed at and hated the other consumers who were in their way. No, all the action of the one Black Friday was on the hill of death outside the city where three souls hung on crosses. Two criminals and the Messiah doing what he had come to do and what the world was desperate for. He continues, he says, That Friday the world went dark. The father turned his back. Graves opened. The veil ripped in two. The son carried the father's anger, the father's wrath. Death was offered so life could be given. Darkness fell so light would shine. Payment made. Freedom given. Redemption accomplished. There was only one Black Friday. There's no need to shop for a Savior anymore. Tonight, as we look at this text of Scripture in Hebrews, I want to show you why you don't have to shop around for a Savior. I want to show you very clearly from the Word of God why Jesus Christ was the one who came. He was the only mediator that God sent between us and him. And it's really based on these two commandments that we see. We see, uh, let's see here. All right, there we go. Two commandments. <laughs> uh, let us hold fast our confession is the first one there. We see that very clearly. And, and these are uh, invitations, you might say, or commandments. I I like to think of them as commandments. It's not a suggestion. 
It's saying this is what we should be doing. Let us hold fast our confession. And, and what this does is it assumes a statement of trust. It assumes a sa- statement of trust. And it looks back and assumes that at one point in your life you made a confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's looking backward. Um, a lot of times we make confessions of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then our lives depict the reality that we may have made a confession, but we didn't have any possession because <laughs> there was no change in our life whatsoever. And so he says here, look into your past and hold on to that confession. If you've made that confession, I pray that it's, it's sticking in your life. Just words, oh, Jesus is Lord, that's not going to necessarily save you. Does your life live up to your confession? And the scripture says very clearly, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, what does it say? You will be what? You will be saved, without a doubt. And if you've made that confession, the commandment here is to cling to that confession. Hold on to it tightly. Well, the second commandment of the two here is draw near with confidence. Draw near with confidence. That indicates not looking to the past, but actually moving ahead, looking to the future. Uh, This is looking really at someone who's been convinced of the truth of the gospel. They've read the word. They say, yeah, this, this seems right. And to some degree, they confessed its uh, veracity, its integrity, its validity, its accuracy. But unfortunately, they haven't come all the way to Christ yet. <laughs> They're still in that process. And sometimes that's the most dangerous place to be, in middle ground between the two. Uh, you can't have one toe in and one toe out when it comes to Christ. It just doesn't work that way. Um, they're convinced it's true. Maybe they've even affirmed that it's true, that Jesus is who he said he was and, and that he died, the death that Scripture says he died, and that he even rose from the dead. They don't even argue with that. You've affirmed that confession. And what he's saying here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't let go of that confession. Keep it going. Look into the future. Draw near, he says, with confidence. If you look over at Hebrews 10, verse 22, he says the same thing. Chapter 10, verse 22. He says, let us draw near. He just reverses it. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then he says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He continues in verse 38, he says, there my righteous one shall live by faith if he shrinks back. My soul has no pleasure in him. It's a warning. It's saying don't allow that confession to turn into some kind of middle ground. 
pursue Christ with everything you have. He continues in verse, chapter 10, verse 38. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. That's really what this book is about, Hebrews. It's about really understanding what it means to finish. To allow your faith to work its way through your complete being to the point where it permeates every bit of you. And what he's telling us to do is come to Christ. Okay, profess Christ, but you also need to draw near to him. You need to continue that pursuit of Christ. So many times I think people raise a hand in a service or walk down an aisle and they think that's where it ends. That's not, that's not biblical. That's where it begins. And so he's saying here, come to Christ. Come all the way to Christ. Don't stop. Don't be caught in that middle ground. And there's three reasons here why we should hold on to this confession and why we should uh, come all the way to Christ. And the first one here is basically that we have a, a great high priest. We have a great high priest. That's what he says right there in the text. Who is that high priest? Jesus, right? The Son of God. That's who is the high priest. Let us hold fast our confession. That's the same reason we draw near because we understand who Christ is. If you look all the way down there, verse 15, he's called the one. Okay? Why hold fast to your confession? Why draw near? Because of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the reason we hold fast. He's the reason we draw near. Why is that? Because he has no equal. He has no, there's no one to compare him to. There's no competition for a Savior the last time I checked. There's no match for him. And the whole book of Hebrews is really designed to show the superiority of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We're told he's better than the prophets, than the patriarchs, than the Old Testament leaders. He's better than the priests that they had. He's better even than the angels. He's better than everyone. He far supersedes all. And no one can provide what he provides. No one. No one can offer what he offers. Because he offers to us a better sacrifice, beloved. He offers to us a better covenant. And within that sacrifice and that covenant are better promises. He offers to us, through his death on the cross, a relationship with God the Father. That is not based upon performance. It's not based upon who we are. It's based upon who he is and what he's done. And because it's based on him and he is God and he is eternal, guess what? That relationship then is eternal. That relationship is everlasting. We don't have to lay awake at night wondering if tomorrow God's going to love us or not. If God's still going to call us one of his children. Because maybe we messed up. Maybe we did something wrong. That's why the Bible says that we come back and, and we confess our sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not because we're good, but because he's good. Because he's a loving and forgiving God. 
See, we live in a very relativistic society today. It's all about the culture. It's all about ethics and morals and all this stuff is going on all around us. That's not what Christianity is about. That's not what the message of Christianity is. It's not about improving your ethics or improving your morals or having more virtue. I mean, all those things are fine. But what does it mean when we call ourselves a Christian? What does it mean to be part of Christianity? It's Christ and Christ alone. I mean, we would never tell someone, oh, you need to come to Jesus because of the ethical value of that decision or because there's morality or because of the virtue that Jesus has. Just come to him for that. If you become a Christian, then you can come to church and you can hang around all the nice people that are in church. <laughs> That's why some people don't come to church. Because <laughs> some churches don't have nice people in them. I'd say ours does. But we have to be careful. See, if we become a we don't become a Christian because it's a good thing to do or it's charitable or because you want to be part of something that's bigger than yourself and make a difference in the world. I mean, that may be fine to go join some missions team or something, but that's not why you come to Christ. There's only one reason to become a Christian, one and only one, and that is to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's it. I mean, there's a lot of other religions if you want to do the ethical improvement thing or the moral or virtue, whatever, go, go, go join those religions. But you're going to be sorely mistaken in the end because they're not going to save you. It was Jesus Christ himself who said that I am the way, the truth, the life. No man, no one, not a single one comes to the Father but through me. It's a very exclusive statement. It's very exclusionary. And in the world of tolerance today, that sounds almost, oh, that sounds hard. That sounds difficult. Well, that's exactly what Jesus said, and that's exactly what he meant to say. And so the writer of Hebrews here is telling us, draw near. Come all the way to Christ. Don't shrink back from your pursuit of Christ. Don't allow that confession that you've made to fall by the wayside. Why? Because he's the only one to come to. He's the only one that can offer you salvation. There's salvation in no other, no other name under heaven, the Bible says. And because we're sinners, for all have fallen short and committed sin, we fall short of the glory of God, we require a Savior. Sinners require a Savior. Sinners also require a mediator. That's what Christ is. Sinners require someone, a mediator. That's what the priest was. He was a go-between, the people and God. A reconciler, someone who can bring God and man together. And the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's unequaled in that role. You say, why? Well, first of all, he's the perfect priest. He's the perfect priest. Verse 14, it says, we have a great high priest. Not just a high priest, but a great high priest. That means he's unmatched. He's on a whole different level. 
than all those other flaw-filled, imperfect priests. Just read through the Old Testament. The priests weren't angels. (laughs) They had a lot of issues. Their families had a lot of issues. There were tens of thousands of priests throughout the Old Testament. Many of them were high priests. But here it says there's only one great high priest. Well, what sets him apart? Look at what he says. He says he's passed through the heavens. What's, what's that mean? See, every priest in the Old Testament had to pass through something to perform their duties. They all passed through certain barriers in order to do what God had called them to do. Maybe it was a curtain. It was a tabernacle or a temple. Whatever it was, they had to pass through certain areas to finally arrive in the presence of God. And in the Old Testament, the presence of God was basically what? The Holy of Holies. That's where it was found. And so all the earthly priests who went into the Holy of Holies entered only once a year. That's how sacred this was. And they would sprinkle the blood from a sacrifice, and immediately they would leave because they were fearful of penalty of death if they stayed there too long. And so the priest had to pass into the tabernacle, through the tabernacle, made by men. They passed into the Holy of Holies in that tabernacle, constructed by men, which is symbolic of the presence of God. But you know what? The earthly priests never got beyond the earthly temple. That's as far as they could go. When they entered the temple, they went through three areas, basically. They went through the outer court where the sacrifices were made there. Then they went into the the holy place. And then they went into the holy of holies. And so there were three barriers or three areas they had to pass through. And the, the high priest couldn't go into the holy of holies until he had offered a sacrifice for his own sin. See, they knew priests weren't perfect. They knew priests were sinful. And that kind of speaks to the reason why they didn't want to linger too long in the presence of God. They wanted to get in there and get out. There was no bench there for them to hang out in the Holy of Holies. There was no chair for them to sit down and relax after they made their sacrifice. There was nowhere to sit at all in the Holy of Holies. Why? Because they were there to do one thing, offer that blood on the altar and and get out of there. But it tells us here the great high priest, the great high priest, Christ, he didn't pass through a curtain in a tent. He didn't pass through a curtain in a building as the other priest did. It says that he passed through the heavens. Look at that, through the heavens. Think about that. Through the atmospheric heaven, through the stellar heaven, through the third heaven, which is the abode of God. That's exactly what he passed through. And when he got there, he presented his own blood shed on the cross to sprinkle on the heavenly mercy seat. That's what it tells us in Hebrews 12, 24. And then he did what no other priest has ever done 
in the presence of God, in the Holy of Holies. They never did this. He sat down. That's what it says. And guess what? He's still there. He's still there. He's still there in the presence of God. He offered a sacrifice before he went in, but the the sacrifice wasn't for himself because he was sinless. Who was the sacrifice for? For us. It was for us. He did what no priest could ever have done. He didn't just stay in the symbolic presence of God, but he went into the real presence of God, into the glory of heaven itself. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us there that when he made perfection, or purification for, of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3. And it tells us again in Hebrews 7.25, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 8.1 says the main point is, is what has been said is this. We have a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Or chapter 9 Verse 12 tells us very clearly, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I mean, praise God that our salvation is eternal. 9.24 says, he did not appear in the holy place made with hands a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Verse 28 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. He's always sitting down. Hebrews 10, 12. We read that. He sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12, 2. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and then what did he do? The Bible tells us he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did he sit down? Because his job was done. His sacrifice was complete. We don't need to do it again. That's why we don't have an altar here. That's why I'm not a priest. We don't do the communion sacrifice thing like some churches do because we know the word of God teaches us that you don't need to do that. It's already complete. He was the perfect priest who passed through the heavens and took his own blood into the very holy of holies, as it were, in heaven and brought satisfaction to God. Not only that, but he stays there and he intercedes for us. 
So why hold on to your confession? Why draw near in full faith? Because there's only one Christ, there's only one perfect priest. Well, also secondly here, he was not only a perfect priest, but he was a perfect priest because he was a perfect person. Verse 25, look at what it says. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, and really the idea is the one, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He's perfect in every way. As a man, he fully sympathizes with everything we go through as human beings here on earth. And as God, he is perfect. He's free, completely free from sin. And both of those are tied to the same individual. Jesus, his human name, and the Son of God, his divine identity. I mean, when you think of all the gallons of blood that ran over the altars for all those centuries, blood that stained the mercy seat year after year, it couldn't take away one sin. Why? Because it was animal blood. The great high priest, as man, shed his own blood for man, as a perfect man. And God stamped his sign of approval on it on the third day when he rose from the grave. Our redemption was complete. It was accomplished. He took his seat. That word sympathize there, it really has the idea where we get the, the word path- uh, pathetic or pathos from. It has the idea to feel pathos with, to identify with. He came into the world and lived as a man for 30-some years. He suffered all the things that human beings would suffer, except he never sinned, not once. Can you be tempted without sinning? Sure. Temptation is not the sin. It's when you give in to temptation. He had to be a man to die in our place because God himself cannot die. So he took on the incarnation. He took on a human body and became a man. So the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, without blemish, is also the perfect priest. So hold on to that confidence. Hold on to that draw near to him with confidence because he's the perfect priest, because he's a perfect person. And then also, because he was a perfect priest and a perfect person, he can make a perfect provision. Perfect provision. That's what he tells us in verse 16 of our text. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, we need help, do we not? Every day we need help. We continuously need help, especially in our, even in our Christian lives. 
I mean, the blood of animals couldn't pacify the wrath of God. The blood of animals couldn't change anything before the judgment throne of God. But because of what the perfect priest, who was a perfect person, did, it says that we can draw near, not to the throne of justice or the throne of judgment, but to what? The throne of grace. Grace. Unmerited favor. Something we don't deserve. We do not deserve the grace of God. But that's exactly what he gives us. That word confidence there means the absence of fear. I remember growing up in the church I grew up in, and you were constantly fearful. You even walk in the building, you felt, and people still sense that today. That's not a fear that's from the Lord. Now, there's nothing wrong with being reverential when you're, you're in a house of worship. I'm not saying that. But you also have to realize this is just a building. This is not a holy place in that respect. We could meet in a cornfield and have the same worshipful experience we're having right now, hopefully. It means really the openness of speech or the freedom of speech, the freedom to speak. We can go before God and tell him whatever's on our hearts. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's, that's a wonderful thing. I had a boss one time that, hey, if you ever run into any problems, let me know. Okay. Well, guess what? I ran into some problems. Guess what I did? I took him up on it. I went into his office. He was on the phone. And I remember, he's, hold on a second. What do you want? Oh, sorry if I'm interrupting. I just wanted a couple minutes. You asked if I ever had any problems. I had some issues. I don't have time for that. Go talk to your supervisor. You know, it's just real rude to me. And I thought, wow, that's not what he said. He must not have meant it. See, God doesn't treat us that way. God is ever waiting for us to come to him with our issues, with our problems. All we will ever find at the throne of God as his children is what? Is grace. Not judgment. Not condemnation but grace. We'll find mercy. Why? Because Jesus paid in full for our sins. Covered them completely. I pray that you'll come all the way to Christ. The perfect priest who's the perfect person who made the perfect provision. Lord, we ask that you would... uh, Help us to understand tonight as we come before this table, this communion table that's before us. Lord, I pray that you would um, show us our own hearts first, that we would look inside. Lord, you warn us in your word as we come to communion that we should examine our own hearts first. And so, Father, we do that. We do that now. We, We pray that we would look deep within our own our own lives, our own hearts. And Lord, if there's something there that shouldn't be, I pray that we would confess it, that we would claim the blood of Christ, that you claim your forgiveness. And Lord, maybe there's somebody here tonight who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. I pray that they would understand there's nowhere else to go. It's not like you have a choice of saviors here. And we're talking all eternity that lies in the balance I pray that you would give them the faith to believe, that you would give them the ability to acknowledge who you are and that they would come to Christ, that they would come all the way to Christ. 
they would commit to live, to love, and to serve you in every way. Father, only you can allow that transaction to take place. So we pray that you would move and work in a powerful way. As we uh, sing a song and then have our communion time together, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, um, remind us of the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And Lord, that this time of year, there's a lot of people that are open to hearing about spiritual things. And maybe some of those people we could even invite on Sunday and knowing that they will hear um, a grace-filled message, a message that is a forgiving message. Lord, I pray that you would lead us and guide us through our communion time, that it would be honoring to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name.